Turn in the Word of God, if you would, to the letter of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews, chapter 10. You'll find that on page 1,283, 1,283 in your pew Bibles. And I'll read the verses 32 to 39. Listen to the word of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not, will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. In the 1930s, Germany became a country under the leadership of Adolf Hitler, a cruel and harsh dictator. And in 1938, he required that all the pastors in the German church should swear an oath of allegiance to him. If they refused to do so, they would be removed from their churches, dismissed from the ministry, and lose their pensions. And this is the oath they were required to swear. I swear that I will be faithful and obedient to Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer of the German Reich and people. Not all the ministers in the German church were willing to subscribe to that oath. One of them, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whose books you can find in our church library and also a couple of biographies for both adults and for young people. I consider this a plug for visiting the library after the service. Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of those who did not sign the oath, and later he suffered for his opposition to Nazism. But he was addressing confirmants. That's the Lutheran way of addressing those who are making public profession of faith. He addressed those who are making public profession of faith with these words. Confirmants today are like young soldiers marching to war, the war of Jesus Christ against the gods of this world. It is a war that demands the commitment of one's whole life. Is not God our Lord worthy of this struggle? Idolatry and cowardice confront us on all sides, but the direst foe does not confront us. He is within us. Lord, I believe. Help thou 
mine unbelief. And I chose to begin the service or sermon this morning with these words, because you young people are making profession of faith in a day that is far different from when I made it some 35 years ago, and certainly far different from what some of the elderly folks in our congregation made it even longer ago. When I made public profession of faith, I think it was in 1988, I could be fairly confident that as long as I remained in Canada, I would suffer not one bit for publicly aligning myself with the Lord Jesus Christ in public profession of faith. But the times, they are a-changing. The world is even more hostile to Christianity than it was in the past. In fact, I think that many years ago, it was probably a thing to be remarked upon as a credit to you if you were a Christian. People respected you for that. But that's not the way it is any longer. There is a public hostility and animosity to Christians in our culture today. You can see it in the cancel culture. You will be sure as young people, as you grow up, to face the repercussions of resisting the sexual identity movement that has swept across our country. And you will find it probably more difficult to secure Christian education for your children than we currently do in this province. There will be opposition to you because of your public aligning with Jesus Christ and your confession that you belong to Him in life and in death. Now, I don't say these things because I'm a negative type person, you know, the one who wears both belts and suspenders and who looks both ways when he crosses the street. No, I believe the Lord reigns and therefore the earth should be glad and John Van Eyck should be as well and everyone who belongs to the Lord should be glad too. The Lord is on the throne. And so whatever the Lord determines would be for the best of His people is fine with me and should be fine with all of us, even if it causes us hardships and suffering and difficulty. But what we need to do in these days is prepare ourselves for the menacing clouds that appear on the, on the horizon, which will break down upon us. That's why I think the quote from Bonhoeffer is so profound, because he's saying that there is idolatry and cowardice on all sides around us that threaten us. But the biggest problem is not what is outside us. The direst foe to confront is, is not what confronts us, The direst foe is within us. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And so as Christians who have testified to the supremacy of Jesus Christ, we must prepare ourselves to stand firm in the faith, to resist all opposition, to run the race to the end, not to give up, to keep on keeping on, Until the day when we see the Lord Jesus Christ as the one supreme King of kings and Lord of lords, when we see all the nations bowing before Him, all opposition cowering before Him, and when we hear His words saying, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. 
And I thought it would be very helpful for these young people, for you young people, and indeed for all of us to reflect together on Hebrews chapter 10, the verses 32 through 39, as the writer to the Hebrews there encourages the people of God to persevere in the faith. The first thing I want you to notice about this passage is that uh, just as I hearkened back to 35 years ago when I made profession of faith, the author here is hearkening back to former days. You can see that in verse 32, but recall the former days. He's speaking about when these believers first became believers. They were Jews worshiping in the way of the old covenant with the sacrifices and all the rituals, and then they had come to hear about Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all the old covenant promises and regulations. And these people had been enlightened by the Holy Spirit of God and had put their faith in Jesus Christ. He says, remember that. And then he tells them that in the midst of their confession of Christ, they suffered intense hardship. You were enlightened, and while you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes they themselves were publicly exposed to reproach. People would mock and ridicule them for identifying themselves with Jesus Christ. And sometimes they were just partners, though they themselves did not receive public reproach, but they aligned themselves with those who did. They took quite seriously the injunction of the Apostle Paul that when one member of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. And so they joined in with those who were being persecuted for the sake of Christ you were even willing to suffer with others. And they did it joyfully. It wasn't something that they begrudged themselves. They, they didn't hide away or uh, leave those who were persecuted in the lurch all alone. No, you had compassion on those in prison, he says. And as a testimony to your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, when persecution reached you in your own financial properties, you were willing to accept the plundering of your property. And you did it all with joy. There was no grumbling or complaining or murmuring against the providence of God. No, you were happy to do this, to align yourself with fellow Christians who had confessed the Lord Jesus Christ, though it meant difficulties for you. And the reason you were able to do that, he goes on to say at the end of verse 34, is that you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now, of course, the better possession that these Christians had was Jesus Christ himself, they had hung on to the Lord Jesus Christ. They had seen in Him the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. He was the one sacrifice that did away with all the other sacrifices. His blood thoroughly cleansed from all sin in a way that all the blood of bulls and goats could never do so. So they had treasured Jesus Christ. They had come to love Him and adore Him. 
Here is my Savior, and He is mine. This is my possession. You had a better possession, and you had a lasting one. So that coming to know Jesus Christ and sharing in the blessings of His grace didn't just mean that you would be happier for the lifespan you had on earth. No, your possession was an abiding one. It would outlast this life. It would continue into glory when you would receive the fullness of your inheritance. It was that better possession and abiding possession that allowed these Christians to joyfully embrace suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. See, if you think that the things of this world are what really matters, that those who have the most toys in the end win, that physical things like health and money is what really brings joy, if you drink that poison that the world is constantly pressing to your lips, you will never suffer for Christ because He won't be worth suffering for. Because these other things, wealth and health and reputation and pleasure and ease, these things have captured your attention. They mean more to you than anything else. And you will never give yourselves recklessly for Jesus Christ will not suffer for him. You will always resist anything that brings any sense of unpleasantness to you for Christ's sake. That was not the problem of these Christians. They, when they were first enlightened, were glad to give it all for Christ and his glory. But the writer to the Hebrews is concerned about these Christians. He knows the pressure they've been under, and the pressure is mounting. You see, these, these Christians had become Christians within the context of the Jewish Old Testament way of worshiping God. And uh, they, they had turned their backs on their families. They had turned their backs on all the old way, the comfortable ways of religious worship. When they came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But there was always pressure on them from the other Jews who had not embraced Jesus Christ. Come back. Deny Christ. Come back to, to this old way of worshiping with all the smells and bells and all the, all the visual helps. Come back. This is our identity as Jews. This is what distinguishes us from all the other nations of the world. Come back to us. And so the Christians were facing pressure to forsake Christ and to return back to their old way of worship. That, that's why the writer here writes this letter, this word of exhortation, as he calls it at the end of the letter, because he's wanting to persuade them. Don't do it. Stand firm. Christ is, is worth everything. The covenant is a, the new covenant is a better covenant than the old covenant. Christ is a better covenant priest than the Aaronic priest, because he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ is a better leader than Moses and Joshua were. Christ is more glorious than the angels. He's, he's pressing them to stand firm in the faith. And you can see how he does it with his exhortations. First of all, he has negative exhortations. Verse 35, he says, "'Do not throw away your confidence.'" 
Don't discard Christ as if he's some worn-out T-shirt that you have no use for. Don't throw away your confidence. He says, uh, also, he says, do not shrink back. You can see this in verse 38. My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And, and the word behind shrinking back is, is this hesitancy, because you're afraid of something. And there was something to fear. There was mocking and ridicule and perhaps imprisonment and the plundering of your goods. But he's saying, don't, don't shrink back. No, don't do that. Don't discard Christ. Don't shrink back from following Christ. And then he says positively in verse 36, what you have need of is endurance. Now, the word endurance is made up of two Greek words remain and under. So he's saying you need to remain under the pressure that is coming upon you for the sake of the gospel. You can think of a a weightlifter who has uh, put the, the barbell and the dumbbells above his head, and he's standing there, and he has to be strong. He can feel his knees quivering. He can feel his, his shoulders trembling uh, because he wants to let it down, and but he cannot let it down. He must remain under. He must have endurance. He, because if he, if he lets it drop, if there's no spotters there, it will cause him harm. So he must press on. He must persevere. He must keep going. And this is what the writer is saying to these Christians. You have need of endurance. You need to keep on keeping on despite the pressures, despite your waverings, despite your weaknesses, keep on going. Live by faith, he says in verse 38. My righteous one shall live by faith. Keep trusting. Keep on clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's really the nub of what he's getting. Just go back, if you would, to what he says in Hebrews 3, verse 14. You see, these, these people had confessed Jesus Christ, but he's concerned about them. He says in Hebrews 3, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unevil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, here it is. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This is what he's saying. You have embraced Christ. So keep on embracing Christ. Don't let go. Cling to Him. Hold Him fast. Hang on to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and when you feel your grip loosening, double up and Hold on to the Lord Jesus Christ. Cling firmly to Him to the end. So that's his exhortation. Don't, don't throw away your confidence. Don't shrink back. Instead, endure. Keep trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he underscores these exhortations with promises first, a negative one. Look at what he says in verse 38. 
My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. These are solemn words. You really should be shuddering them if you are hearing them. Shuddering, rather, if you are hearing them, because God is saying, if you have confessed Christ, and then you shrink back from following him or you turn away from him. God will have no pleasure in you whatsoever. In fact, you will be destroyed. This is not a game that we're playing. Young people, it's not a game that we're playing when you make public profession of faith before Christ and his church. This is serious. I've impressed this upon you numerous times, and I do so again this morning. This is dead serious. Your eternal destiny depends on what you do with Christ, not just this morning, but tomorrow, next week, and next year, next decade. What you do with Jesus Christ determines your destiny. And if you shrink back from following Christ, If you throw away Christ and discard him, saying, the cost is too much, it creates too much trouble for me to follow Christ, I solemnly warn you this morning, it will not go well with you. God will not be pleased with you. You will be destroyed. And that's true for all of us. These are solemn words. And you need to think about this When there's an easy way in front of you and a hard way, remember the easy way will lead to destruction. It doesn't cost anything. You can have the affirmation of the culture. It won't mistreat you at all. That easy way will lead to destruction. But the hard way of saying, I will not shrink back. I will cling to Christ. I will stand with Christ and for Christ. Come what way? That's the hard way. And you need to think about the solemnity of those choices. Because the God that we're dealing with, he's he's not safe, as C.S. Lewis said. He's a serious God. Just uh, glance up in verse 30. We know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see, with what blood earnestness the writer to the Hebrews says to these Christians, you've confessed Christ. You have claimed him. You have even in the past have been willing to suffer for Christ, and you did it gladly. But let me tell you, if you now discard him and shrink back, it will not go well with you. So he underscores the exhortation with a warning. But he also underscores the exhortation with an encouragement. He says in verse 35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. God will honor your faithfulness to him. You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You see what he's saying. You press on. God's not going to forgive you, forget you. God is not going to leave you in the lurch. You will never, ever suffer for following Christ. 
God will never be indebted to you. You will always be blessed. He will reward you richly. Remember what our Lord Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are you when men persecute you and say all manner of evil against you for my sake. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Yes, it will mean hardship on earth, undoubtedly. No questions asked. But it's only for a little while. Look at what it says there in verse 37. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. This day the noise of battle, the next the victor's song. Suffering is what we're called to as Christians, but only for a bit. And then everlasting, unremitting joy, pleasures forever at the right hand of God. The sense of sins forgiven, the joy of fellowship with the saints from all places and all ages, the honor and privilege of seeing Christ in all of His magnificence, and all opposition being forever erased and destroyed so that you live in safety and security for all eternity. It's really a no-brainer, really. You suffer for Christ for a bit. Eternity in His presence. So that's my call to you, young people, a reminder to all of us. When you made public profession of faith, you stood before God and His church, and you claimed that you sought your salvation outside of yourselves only in Jesus Christ. You claimed that you loved the Lord, that you wanted to serve Him, that you were done with the world, that you wanted to live a godly life, that you wanted to hate your sin and love righteousness and obedience, that you wanted to be a a living member of the church, that you wanted to submit to the elders, and when there was a matter of discipline, you promised that you would willingly submit to their leadership because you understood the value and necessity of standing firm in Christ, of clinging to Him for your eternal blessing. And the only thing that will enable you to be faithful to your promises, young people, It's not the pressure of the church. It's not the pressure of your social group or family. The only thing that will enable you to be faithful to your promises is if you are captured by the wonder that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. That's uh, that's what Bonhoeffer said. He said, uh, is not God our Lord worthy of this struggle? Of course he is. Remember what the Apostle Paul says. He said, uh, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. If you know Christ Jesus as your Lord, as you've confessed you do, then nothing else really matters. If you have to give your life for Christ in five years or ten years, or if you have to face financial repercussions for your devotion. It doesn't really matter because Christ is all. He's glorious. And it is an indescribable, unthinkable privilege that by the power of the Holy Spirit He has worked in your hearts and has made you to see that Christ is wonderful. To have Christ is to have everything. John Hooper, an English 
reformer in the 1500s. He said, um, loss of goods is great. If you have to suffer for Christ and lose your money or lose your health or lose your life, that's great. But loss of God's grace and favor is even greater. And if you have to choose the one, let goods and kindred go this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. That's what you need to be impressed with. You might know the name of Richard Wormbrunt, another library plug. There are books in the library about him. I encourage you to read that. Richard Wormbrunt was a pastor in Romania just as communism was coming into the country. He, he, uh, he was imprisoned, suffered immensely uh, for the sake of Christ, and then some Americans paid money for his release, and he was allowed to come out of prison, and, and then he emigrated to America. But his last confirmation class, that's what in the Lutheran church they call those who are making a profession of faith. If, with his last professional faith students. He had 10 to 15. He said, one Sunday, I took them to the zoo. I'm not going to do that. He said, I took them to the zoo, and I stood them in front of the lion's pen. And I said to them, some of your forefathers in the faith were destroyed by lions because they confessed Jesus Christ. You will probably not be thrown to lions Wormbrunt said, but you will be hated by men who are worse than lions. What will you do? That's the question I leave you with. I don't know what uh, the future holds. I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, though I work for a nonprofit organization. So I don't know what the future holds. It doesn't look promising. The freedoms that we've enjoyed for so long seem to be under attack. So I don't know what it holds. But now's the time to prepare yourself for suffering and do so by treasuring the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that in him you have a better possession than anything this world can give you. And it lasts. It's an abiding one. And may the God of peace who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good for doing his will, working in you what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious and ever-blessed God, we thank you that you are merciful to us. We thank you that you know our weaknesses, our tendencies, our temptations, and that you encourage us, you exhort us, you warn us, but you also encourage us to press on, to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we confess this morning our weakness and the need for your Holy Spirit's power in our lives so that we would not wander from you. We pray that you'd bless these young people that they would be stalwart soldiers of the cross against the gods of this world. Pray for all of us that we would be faithful, come what may, in the face of the hatred and vitriol of a 
devil who seeks to destroy us and his minions who seek to harass us. We pray that as we're badgered and pestered, that we would count it all joy to suffer for Christ and that we would run the race set before us until we receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. We do pray, O Lord Jesus, that you would come quickly. We long for your return so that we might worship you without any opposition and securely for all eternity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's uh, sing together standing hymn number 429, Come Thou 